Hello, and welcome back to the Marcus Kauke Inquisitor podcast. Today, I'm delighted to have Stuart Pyle, who is the lead consultant, bid writer, training professional, and supporting consultant, and cat wrangler at Strapland. He's a specialist in bid writing, outsourced bid writing, and winning bids. He has an 88% success rate in bid writing. Stuart, first of all, welcome, good morning, and could you give the listeners a one-minute overview of the kind of work that you do? Hi, Marcus, and thank you very much for inviting me to the podcast today. Bid writing, all aspects that go with that, what we do is we start by working with an organisation, looking at their strategy for bidding. We then look at these opportunities they are looking for, build a skills rising scanning profile, and we assist them to identify opportunities. Following through that, as opportunities arise, go no go decisions on the processes whether they wish to proceed with the submission or not, and then we move into the bidding process. And depending on the nature of the bid. It's whether it's a hand-holding through the process, whether we manage the bid or support their bid management, or even if we just review the bids that they are writing to me through their own team of team of writers. The aim is always to deliver on the, deliver a quality bid by the deadline, and that is where we have 100% success. We have never missed a deadline. Excellent. You say we. Who's involved? There's a team of writers, and what I mean by the a team is there are multiple aspects to putting a bid together. It's not just about an individual sitting down, writing a few lines about an organisation and submitting. It's a complex process that requires different skill sets for different aspects. So, for example, we have a couple of researchers who will look into competitor analysis, uh, also what the local labour market information is, and support the bid writing process in that regard. We obviously have the writers that put the words on the page. We have uh, people who do modelling, uh, modelling up a, a, a submission um, in terms of financials, arriving at costings, building that process as it, as it is structured. Editors, people who sense check the bid, which is actually reconciling that it actually goes back against where it is. We have proofreaders. Following the proofreading, you know, depending on the nature of the bid, it might be that we can put some graphics together and some imagery. So it might be that we have graphic designers who work with the team to actually enable the presentation of bid at the level we're looking for it. Excellent. So let's get into the meat and gristle of all of this bid writing, because for years I've been teaching people that all requests for proposal bids, tenders are bogus, and that you have to treat them with enormous suspicion. Tell me this, at what point do buyers or prospective buyers, or rather end user organisations, let's say that, go out to tender, and for what reasons? They go out for a number of reasons. It's a good question, actually. Very often, it's a legal requirement. So if it's a public sector submission, if it has more than a certain value, then it is a requirement for it to go to a tendering process. The other area where it happens is if there's a large-scale, possibly complex project where they want to put a clear specification down. So if if, if they're looking to buy something very specific. The other one is if they require standardised diligence. So, for example, if they want people to be to go through a minimum entry level, albeit a minimum entry level uh, that they want. They might use a a tendering process or a pre-tendering process 
to establish a basic level of competency in which to be talked to the organisation. Innovation is another area where the, they often go out to, to tender. So if they know they want something different, but they don't know quite what it is they're looking for, and this is probably where your, suspect, your suspicion of phishing comes in, you don't know what you don't know. The organisation knows they want something different, but they want to explore what's out there. So very often they'll go out almost with a, as you suppose you rightly say, with a, with a large net, throw it out there to see what they can reel in. And sometimes they'll do this through a, a tendering process. They might do it as a point tender. OK, we tend to teach our clients to simply ask a very basic question up front. So still, where are you in your decision making process? Are you gathering information? Are you looking for help to design the specification? Or are you at the point where you're ready to select a partner? Normally, just by the omission, the hesitation, the length of the silence, that's a good indicator as to whether or not there's something viable here. So I'm curious, how much does a typical pursuit cost an organization, a vendor organization, when they are going after a tender and you know with the number of people the time the hours the opportunity cost in terms of putting in the submission to the to the buyer uh, that's a good question because there's two aspects to it there is the direct cost of the application so if you do come to a an external writer then normally they will put a price tag on the on the submission but in terms that there are also hidden internal costs because no good writer should work in isolation. So, for example, I was working with an NHS client. They put a team of a steering group together and a project team together for the bid. The actual cost of the external bid writer was actually quite low because they put a group of doctors and clinicians in the room to discuss the service. So in their particular instance, you know, they had a very high hidden cost, and and that can be and that can be expensive. I don't think people appreciate sometimes the length of time it takes to reach consensus, particularly where it's not a service that is, you know, it's not a square box, it's not a product. If you're you're trying to decide what it actually is that your offer is, then lots of hours can be lost in that way. So it's, it comes down to how good your project manager is on mm-hmm. controlling that time. Yeah, because obviously if that then controls the, the hidden cost, that it, it is always it, it is an expensive process to uh, to chase a bid. You know, more so than just the actual invoice you get from uh, an external writer. The, well, the external writer is going to be cheap as chips by comparison to the amount of time, effort, resource, opportunity, cost, money that's being sunk into the internal team. I've had experiences where they didn't realise just how much it was costing them, and it was easily forty thousand and sometimes going up into six and even seven figures to pursue a big bid. So it's not a surprise. I mean, one of the big frustrations that companies have is that they don't know how to get out early enough for bids that they can't or shouldn't win. How do you coach your clients to identify when a no-bid situation is required, and how do you teach them to handle that situation elegantly? Right. That, that's, a, that's a very good question. I mean, I, in my instance, I, I focus on, on writing bids in my areas of expertise. So I'm not writing, but there's two types of writers, really, I guess. There are the writers that write from knowledge 
from within the sector because they've lived in the sector and there are professional writers that are perhaps previously English language students or journalists who write very beautifully but don't bring a, a significant amount of background knowledge to the to the sector so they can write your bid beautifully they just you, you need to fully control what they write about somebody who writes from within the sector will also bring an element of knowledge about the sector they, the subject matter is what they what they know now you would expect that most organizations would understand what their strengths and limitations are and would be able to reach a go no go decision quite simply however what we very often find is that we might have to model up the costings so for example uh, there's a lot of organisations that are joining frameworks to work with the government. The framework is uh, almost like an approved supplier list, for want of a better description. And it could be for a range of products, from selling photocopiers to the government, right the way through to putting carers, domestic carers, paid for by the local authority. And in that situation, those frameworks, you have a choice. You can either work on framework or off-framework. And what I mean by that is you can either join the framework, which means you're on the approved supply list, and you're therefore in the mix to win any work that they subsequently have because you've met the minimum standard. But in doing so, you agree to a pricing schedule that is actually very, very sharp and almost at the point of not particularly very viable. If you work off-framework, so you take the decision not to go forward, Local authority asks you to provide whatever it is that you're, you provide to the public sector. You can set your, you're free to set your own prices. The problem is they don't necessarily come to you first. They, go, they, they will go to their framework decision. So in terms of go, no go, that becomes a commercial decision that we need to work out the finances. So what we try and do is understand what the services that the customer wants to offer. That's first and foremost the most important thing, and how well that maps to the specification laid down by the by the buyer. Mm-hmm. We then look at what the competitors are going to be in the mix for it. So, how likely is it has it been written for general consumption, or has it been written specifically with one particular supplier in mind? And then it's actually a financial viability. So there is a little bit of pre-work to do in reaching a no-go, a go, no-go decision. But it tends to centre around those three elements. It tends to centre around can they win, how do they win, and really do they want to win. Okay, well, that's very helpful. Tell me this then. Often I've seen bid requests that essentially look like a chimps put it together. (laughs) It's quite depressing because they they seem to put, um, they, they get centres of dissatisfaction, all grumble. But what they're really focusing on is the symptom, not the cause. And so then they put this request for submissions out in the marketplace. And when I've been going through them with my clients, you're thinking, you obviously haven't got a clue what the real problem is. How often do the, the writers of the bid framework, if you like, the tender document, how often are they actually qualified to write it? And what can you do about that when you come across a request or an invitation that looks like it's been handled by a total amateur, like procurement, for example? Yeah, the uh, that is a very that's a very interesting question. I mean, commissioners really tough to take commissioners are the people who write the write you know write the specifications and put the bids out there. Very often they might not have a particular understanding of the sector. So going back to my example of photocopiers, 
the commissioner who puts together the tender might not have the first idea what what they specifically want from their particular photocopier specification. So they rely on people to give them some advice. Yeah. Um, coming back to are they qualified? Some of them are. Some of them have qualifications out there, procurement qualifications, that will te- which will teach the specialisation of commissioning bids processes. But most are normally experienced. In other words, they've, they've started out in procurement, They've they've joined the if you like the commissioning teams and they are thereby based on experience. And as a result, you're quite correct. Sometimes the specifications do tell us or show us that we have a bit of a problem in those areas. But it's normally obvious to spot. And the symptoms of that, for example, would be the types of questions that have been written. Sometimes there'll be overlapping questions, so the question will be kind of repeated. It will follow an illogical format. It, it might be that they've not asked a critical question that you would expect to see. Normally, when you read the specification, how well the specification is actually put together, that's the first indicator. Yeah. The types of questions is the second indicator, questions that you would have to ask. Normally, in most bidding processes, uh, you'll find there's an opportunity to ask questions of the buyer. Very often, if you find there's a high degree of questions coming out, visions to tender documents, you end up with version two, three, four of documents. You start to very quickly realise that the person who put it together has either been in a rush not had a good day or that they were potentially less than uh, competent at actually putting the commissioning together. So how do you handle that elegantly by going going back to the buyer organisation and challenge their thinking? Again, you do two things. One, you modify the response to the bid. You can shape your responses to make sure you are presenting the right information. Because the danger is, is that they realise halfway through the process, or still after you've pushed in a submission, that they don't they don't want to proceed because they didn't ask the right questions. So the idea is you make sure that you've asked answered not only the questions that are on the page, but ask the answer the questions that they should have potentially asked in the first instance. You can clarify and very often by clarifying, you know, putting in clarifying queries and reshape or gather further information around the, uh, the the process. It's difficult because when you're talking back to the commissioners, you, you are constrained by the channels for communication. So you can't approach them outside of the, the query. And when you put your query in, you've kind of got to, even though they're impartial and they go in and then get distributed out to everybody, you don't want to ask it in a way that is designed to make them look silly or irritate because people are people and no matter how dispassionately or disconnected they try to be they still know that that query and clarification came from you and you might have made it look a little bit daft with the question so it's it's counting even your queries one deciding do you want to query something and two if you do query something how you then format that in a way that you can get to a clear answer to so you can actually follow that process through and fill in that gap without actually alienating the person that's ultimately going to be eventually marking your submission. You mentioned that you craft your response accordingly to help them get the answer that they need rather than the one that they've asked for. Do you put yourself in danger of them being viewed as not answering the question? You're correct. I did, you know, that is something that I, I, I think you need to do. However, you know, my first part of that statement I, I made was you answer the questions that you are being asked but you also make sure that you answer the questions they also need to hear. So what, when you get a submission, very often the question will actually have multi-part answers. There is opportunity with 
in it to ensure that not only do you cover off everything they're asking in the spec, and part of the sense checking process that I talked about earlier is to go through the specification and your responses line by line almost, and actually ensuring that you have ticked off and boxed off every aspect of the specification. Because the the other thing is, I spent, there are two parts to a specification. There are the questions they ask, and there is the specification they set. Right. And just because they've asked a question doesn't mean they've asked a question to <coughs> every part of the specification. So okay. what you're doing is answering the questions first, then you're doing a sense check against the specification to make sure your answers are, con are appropriately contexted to the, the specification. But also within the specification, if there are questions that have been unasked in the specification, which is often where this element of putting in the bits that you should have said, yeah. rather than answering the question, very often that will come from the specification. Very often writers or respondents to bids will very much answer the questions as they stand, but then they don't go back and do the second part of it, which is to then go back and make sure it's, those answers are contextualised and complete. And what I mean, as I say, if there's something in the specification that hasn't been particularly well addressed through the questioning, either your question response is not complete or the questions itself don't really explore that aspect, then you need to make sure that you've brought that into the response yourself so that they've got that complete picture. The specification very often will have quite a broad scope, where well, question will have a very specific scope. So it's using your judgment, uh, but when you respond to the questions to make sure you're also not only answering that specific scope, the scope, but also going back and clarifying all the broader scope of the, if you like, it's the bit of a, it's the subtext in, in, in things. It's what's not explicitly explained in the questions or explored in the questions but it's kind of implicit in the actual specification itself so it's that it's that bit that's not been proactively explored but it's but it but you need to cover it from the specification okay well that's really interesting we teach a rule which is never answer an unasked question in the face-to-face -face sales environment in a bid or a tender i think one of the big challenges is how to ask the questions back to the prospect and get them to volunteer and say, yeah, we want some of that. Is there a process that you can take the buyer through where you're not having to give away the crown jewels to your competition? Because I know very often that if you ask a question, they say, oh, in order to be fair, we have to show everybody, which I have to say just makes my flesh crawl. Because <laughs> if I came up with a question and they didn't, why the heck uh, are they getting access to my brilliant thinking? Yeah, I mean, that is, I mean, that's the classic, I mean, that's part of the go-no-go -no decision-making process right at the very, at, at the very front. The, the, the difference between what, what you do is that you're all about action development. So, like you say, you don't answer, you don't ask, answer questions you haven't been asked because it's about creating a dialogue and evolving both sides of the conversation, yourself and your prospect, through to a to a decision making process or a buying decision. In the case of a tender, then it you have to commit it all to paper because the convincing argument, the closing, also has to be on the same page as the the bits that develop the interest. Because the person is going to make an actual buying decision that they are going to commit themselves to, it is not that you, you can't leave unanswered questions 
because they might choose your competition, in which case, which then ultimately you lose because you didn't articulate the answer. You're, you're very right insofar as you are putting a lot of CIP on the page. Yeah. Uh, you can't, in most instances, there'll be a template in the document that you can detail anything you don't want shared. So in the, in the spirit of fair play, there is it's normally a, FLR, a freedom of information restriction. So if, for example, you say, well, I, I'm going to tell you this particular process, that's our IP, we do not want that released, you need to just detail it, and it can't be released if somebody puts in an FOI request. Um, oh, fabulous. I didn't realise that. That's a really useful insight. That changes quite a lot of my thinking in that case. Yes, but can I caveat that that again comes back to how good your commissioner is, or earlier question of how good the commissioner is, uh, and did they actually put that facility in there for you to to do that? If you don't see it, it, does it make good business sense to go back to the commissioner and say, I see there is no freedom of information uh, clause, can you put that in if you want us to submit? Yes. I wouldn't word it perhaps quite like that, but in essence... How, how would, would you word, uh, word it? <laughs> I, 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 probably wouldn't, I probably wouldn't word it as a, as a challenge, you know, if you want us to submit. That's a slightly adversarial statement. I would put it along the lines of, given that we will be disclosing some intellectual property during the tendering process, we would appreciate the opportunity to complete a freedom of information request restriction, please. Would you be able to introduce that? element see that's why you do this and i don't (laughs) (laughs) but um, because they're either going to do it or not i mean whether you uh, in in reality it's for me it's always it's all i always have an adage in in, that i that they use with people when i'm in when i'm in authority when i when i have within my businesses if i want a cup of tea i have a choice i can say to somebody make me a cup of tea and then when they look at me all funny i can say now and they'll run away, they might make me a cup of tea, they'll be grumbling all the way, they'll have had a really, they'll, they'll, they'll probably be wiping the spoon on the bottom of their shoe that they used to spill in my tea, but the dead cert is that that cup of tea is, not, is probably going to be one of the most revolting cups of tea that I've ever, ever had. If I turn around to them and said, you couldn't do me a favour, I'm parched, I couldn't possibly just nip in the kitchen and grab me a quick cup of tea, could you? Not only will they run off to the kitchen as quickly as you like, they will make a really decent cup of tea, possibly with a biscuit on the side of it, and bring it to me. Because psychologically, they've done the same thing. The objective has been achieved. I have my cup of tea. But in doing one, I've empowered somebody and made somebody feel valuable and important. And on the other way I've done it, I've just irritated them and really given them a chance to grumble about day. So sometimes it's how you approach the question or the act rather than what the actual act is itself. So, uh, yeah, I would, I would probably tackle that slightly differently to yourself. Fair enough. The number one rule that we teach in Sandler is nurture, nurture, nurture. And that does require you to sometimes take the honey rather than vinegar option. So absolutely. <laughs> Let's get, go on the positive side. So anyone who knows me knows that I'm not necessarily always focused on the positive, uh, but I'll ask a positive question. What what are the qualities that tell you that a tender has really been well thought through? I think really is the quality of the specification. When they articulate what they require, and the, the, the knowledge which they, they display in spec- putting that specification together 
is probably the first indicator of a, of a well-constructed, well-thought-out submission. So, for example, it'll be the background knowledge. And I'm not just talking about cutting and pasting, pasting, I don't know, local area information or a local project information. I'm talking about relevant, directly relevant to the project, a well-constructed spec, spec process. The next thing is the, the questions. They, they choose good, you know, good quality questions that are really going to expose weakness. While I'm looking at that, uh, looking at a question going, Ugh, I don't really like that question, then the, the, the reality is, is that it's, an, it's a searching question and a searching question is a good thing because by my client answering that question very well, then I know that question is going to be other people standing. If every question is an easy question, then it's going to be very hard to differentiate yourself from your competition. So a good, a good specification, ironically, is the one that asks the difficult questions. The other thing I look at is very often you, you have word limits or character count limits for responses or page limits even sometimes. Again, an indication of have they given an appropriate amount of space for the response to the question they're asking. Quite recently, I completed a submission where the question had something like 47 bullet points or parts to it, and it took <laughs> something like 1,800 words for them to write down a list of bullets of what they actually wanted, and then they gave me 750 words to put the response together. So half of what they used, twice as many words, to list the areas they wanted me to cover <laughs> compared to the, uh, the area for the response. So even if I'd have written just each of those bullets as a header, which is kind of one of the guiding principles for starting your initial draft, it, I would have been I would have been more than double over word count before I'd even uh, before I'd even put really a response to any of those points together. But, and that's and that's in, and that's interesting. Very often that that's done deliberately, and that for me is one of the, also one of the warning signs, ironically. And it's a warning sign that they're basically on a fishing trip or they've already decided who they want to win it and then make it impossible for anyone else to, to have a crack. Usually, they, uh, usually they, it's either a very poorly constructed bid where they've really not thought about it, so the person is not particularly very competent at putting the submission together, or it forces an incomplete answer no matter what or how you, ref uh, you write the response. And normally when that comes... Uh, then normally it's normally because there is potentially a preferred a preferred bidder because they they can they can you can be knocked out then on a tech or, you know because you've only covered half of the, of the materials and they'll say well they only covered half but they covered the right half okay um, you know so so it, very often for me that's an indicator that there is a preferred bidder in the uh, in in the mix and also sometimes I mean on that preferred bidder it is sometimes if there is language within the specification. So, uh, for example, there was a uh, a particular competitor of a client of mine has a particular model that they like to put together, and they give it their they, they, they've trademarked it, given it a swanky name, and when it was was articulated in the specification, it was you need a model like <laughs> and, and their model was put forward as an example of the type of model they were expecting. That is. I, my advice to the client in that particular instance was chances are you're not going to be in the mix for that one. You're going to be up against it. It doesn't mean you can't win it. It just means you're going in already having a favourite in mind.
Yeah. But very so, often on that, I, I very often liken it to uh, an interview process. You know, when you're recruiting somebody new, you ask for CVs, you get half a dozen CVs come through your door, you look through them and you pick you pick a couple of CVs to interview. At the point you've got their C, the CVs of the candidates, there will be one you really like and think is going to be the right one. And then you'll have the other person who was also good, but probably not the one you're going to take. But when you meet them in principle and in practice, very often that then gets that gets reversed. And they'll, they'll, they'll go into a tender with one idea. This is who we're thinking of. But then somebody comes along and gives them something unique, different, better value proposition. And actually, you can take it away from them. It's just you just know you're up against it, to be fair. But then you know who you're trying to be. So from a writing point of view, yeah. you're not just writing from the you're not just writing from the point of the client. You're writing to eliminate the competition. So, for example, I write for the care of one of my sectors, so responses to health and social care type submissions. And I might be writing a bid one day for the NHS. I might be writing it for the private sector, trying to take make make a play for NHS territory. Or I might be doing it from a uh, from a small organisation type point of view, or a third sector charity point of view. Now, I could be writing the same. I could be a pro. People can ask me to write the bid from any one of those three aspects or angles. Yeah. And when I'm responding, I'm responding to eliminate the other two aspects. So if I'm NHS, I'm looking to respond. I'm looking to eliminate third sector, and I'm looking to eliminate private sector in the response I put together. And then vice versa if I if I write from the other angles or other perspectives. Okay. One of the things that's going through my mind is this sounds like an awful lot of cat herding and you describe yourself as a cat wrangler. Um, how much is down to the writing and how much is down to project managing, making sure that you've got the right people getting involved at the right time, saying the right thing? I think it's a combination, to be fair. I don't think it's an either or situation. Having the right people is really important but having the right people at the right time and running in the right direction is what is you know perhaps the most important underpinning factor because that then informs the quality of the writing yeah so if you don't have if you don't have the right team onboarded very quickly you you don't get that this is a this is a project and and in in very real terms writing a bid is like developing software or developing a mobile phone absolutely i can see that because what you do is you create the first iteration, you know, the, if, if you like, the version one. And then what you're trying to do, and that will be a very rough draft. And then what you're going to do is you're going to do version two, version three, version four, version five. And each time it gets better and better and better as you refine it and hone it and yeah. tailor it more precisely to where you're going. If you don't onboard the people you might not even get the first iteration completed. So you get to the end of your time scale, which is absolute. There is no slippage. Unlike a sales process, which, you know, can be, it could be a few days, it can be a few months. If it slips by a day or two, it doesn't matter too much because you're, you're, you control the sales process. And I appreciate what you're going to tell me about sooner is better. But second, but in reality, we get a hard deadline. Everything that needs to be achieved needs to be achieved by that deadline. So when I talk about being a, a, a cat wrangler is because people are busy. The first thing to understand is when I walk into an organization, everybody in that organization already has a day job. Yeah. They are already stretched and they've probably all got an in-tray with overflowing stuff that they're going to get around to the minute they get a chance. 
And then this project lands with a with a really short deadline that I then need to take some of their time to contribute to. It becomes really important to be able to control those interactions. So very often, organising the, the right is very much about analysing the specification, identifying the work packages that need to be completed, and I'll talk about that in a second, Get and then meeting with those individuals to get that sorted very quickly and get that information in and collected in so you can utilise that. So, for example, if there is QPE, which so there's the transfer of undertakings of staff, so in other words, there's the incumbent organisation, the organisation that currently has the contract that you're bidding for, are going to lose the contract. There is a legal requirement to employ and then get rid of or continue to employ their staff you know so you have to make the redundancies within your new contract rather than in their old their old provision for that you need hr and you need potentially some legal advice employment advice so depending on how who the customer is or who the client is they might have that internally or that might even go out to third party external advice on how to manage that situation we also incorporate the finance team on that because obviously there will be a cost of actually employing those people and then making them redundant. So when we put the costing model together, we're going to talk to the finance director, but equally within that, we need to be able to go there with the information that this cheaply is going to cost a million pounds or half a million pounds. So we can factor that in as one of the one of the costing one of the costings that we put together with the pricing schedule. It's about getting the service right very quickly, but it's about looking at these wider issues like QP, like the finances, so that you can pull that together. So making it all work. You can't work them in isolation, but very often you can't work them in a team because you can't bring the team together because of their other duties and real life that they've got to work with. So, you know, it's very much being flexible enough to pull those all those elements into the bid as you require them. So everything informs everything else and it's a cohesive structure in the timeline you've got. That sounds to me like managing access to the people on the vendor side is tricky. What about getting access to the cast of characters on the buy side? How, how do you manage that? Is it possible? What prevents you from being able to do that? Because... That moves into the realm of salesmanship rather than order taking. And I'm curious, yeah. because of the nature of my business and the people who listen to the podcast, what are the tips that you would give in order to help people get access? Yeah, the first one is read the spec before you do anything. Because very often in the specification, they will have consequences of soliciting information or or. Uh, and actually the use of any inducements into the bidding process. So what they try and do, most bits will try and eliminate your opportunity to do this. If you read the terms of the of the bid, it will potentially tell you what they will do if this is what you you can invalidate your bid putting doing such a thing. That said, that commissioners are organisations and you, you live and work in an industry sector, then chances are you know the people and you can always leverage a personal network. Now, while it can't be seen to be done at an obvious level, then if you're the incumbent, for example, so you are the, you are the holder of the current contract that's out for tender, then you are still going to be communicating with the people that are commissioning the tender on a daily basis. Now, depending on your relationship, you can you, you will have conversations in the works. And as long as you're 
careful, then you can construct conversations that might give you useful insight that you don't already have as because you've got the inside track. If you want to leverage a personal relationship or contact, then you, you could do that, but you would need to be discreet because if it became known or was found out, you then win the contract. Your competition could then actually use it to get your contract quashed as an unfair competition. And if it's particularly for a government sector or public sector, opening competitive tendering is exactly, it's wrongful. It does exactly what it says on the tin. It's open and competitive. And anything that isn't can be challenged and will be squashed. And there is ramifications for having contract withdrawal. On that note, when people say competitive, and in fact, one of the things that I teach my clients to do is if they're a publicly listed organisation, go to their annual report and accounts. Because what you'll often see is in section 1A, there'll be all this blue sky thinking and section 1B will be all the caveats as to why they're not going to be able to achieve the 24% growth in Germany or 74% in Greece. What you'll also uh, see is language like we are committed to cost optimization and price improvement within our supply chain. Uh, which means we're trying to penny pinch and we're going for the low bid. How do you quickly identify whether or not the low bid will win? In most instances, they're kind enough to tell us. In most submissions, the specification process will actually normally tell you out of 100%, they're normally marked out of 100%, will tell you whether it's going to be 20, 30 or 40% based on price or maybe more. And then the remaining is based on technical skill. Now, what they do is they give you a marking matrix for each question. So it might score between 0 and 5, depending on how good it is per question. They'll scale that up with a weighting. So important questions get bigger scores than less important questions that they're they're looking at. And that's normally Um, highlighted in the process? That is highlighted. That's highlighted in the specification document. So that's actually detailed in the specification document, both the weightings for the importance of a question and the, if you like, the scoring matrix by what, what they're expecting in their question response. So they're actually, if you read them, and this is why it's time intensive. I mean, these are the steps that people tend to skip or skip or skip over. When it comes to the pricing, normally what they'll do is they'll allocate their percentage, which could, could be 20, 30, 40, 50% of the total bid weighting is based on price. They tell you that going in. And then they tell you how they calculate a score for price. So what they say is the optimum price or the lowest price will will score the whole 40. And then basically, they'll depending on how, how far away you are from that price, that will be the percentage reduction in your overarching score. And what they've done recently is where they are bringing in concept of what we call an unusually low price because they do understand that people very often are trying to buy business and as a consequence of that we'll put in a real low ball price which is unrealistic they take the contract they have the money out of the contract for a period of time and then they just phoenix the business so they now bring in this low bar but if it's an unusually low price they eliminate that from there and they go to the first what they consider to be reasonable price although they won't tell you what the reasonable price is if you actually put that in as a clarification or a query well, the uh, aircraft carriers an interesting case in point they start at three billion a piece and they're currently tracking at 12 billion a piece yes yeah. Now, very often, very, very often, this is a, um, and particularly in, it depends on the sector as well. Sectors are anything that's construction, be that a building, be that uh, uh, you know, a, a shopping centre, be that an aircraft carrier. Complex build projects tend to have caveats, and this is where the 
if you like, the artificially low-price concept originated because three million, three billion, sorry, for the aircraft carrier was at a really low price. With you know, an American destroyer is is six is six billion dollars, and that's a and that's and that's a relatively small boat by comparison. You know, so to have an aircraft carrier for three million uh, three million pounds as a starting point is not ever going to is not ever going to work, even when you do the conversions for currency. And that sort of thing should have been eliminated at that point. The, if you like the person who's tendered for that, they've got the business, and within it, they've been able to scope creep the value up. And that's why very often people lowball the price because they know that once they've got it, they rely on you know some very clever language and loopholes in contracts to actually then leverage the price. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when should the vendor attempt to write the specifications in partnership with the buyer? Good question. Again, normally if there's innovation, commissioners will commission what they understand and what they know. And the old adage, you only know what you know. So you have to plant the seed. And ideally, you're absolutely right in what you said earlier. If you can go to a commissioner and you can say, here's a really good idea. How about you buy this without commissioning it, without putting it through a commissioning process? Then that's always got to be the best way forward. You know, and I appreciate what that does is that eliminates a tendering process and kind of puts me out of business. <laughs> but that is the best. That is the best way. Unfortunately, in most instances, if your innovation has as a high value, then they will say, unfortunately, based on legal constraints, I'm going to have to put that out to open competitive tendering. So in that case, that's when you work with the buyer to actually try and ensure that they, when they put the specification together, they actually build your innovation into it and your ip into it and that actually goes back to a you know a previous question that you asked when we talked about a specification containing um, a particular model relevant to a particular supplier so or a particular competitor they that, that means the chances are that that competitor took innovation to the commissioner commissioner likes it has decided to commission that piece of work and has put it out to open and competitive tender so that's, again, another indication potentially that that is something where there's been a, a I would say, collusion because that is a sense of wrong. It, there's nothing wrong with taking an innovation or a new way of doing things to an organisation that needs to buy something new and innovative. But then when they put it out to tender, it sometimes it becomes obvious who that was. That kind of is the, 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 the key, really. Work with them, get them to spec it your way. In an example, currently, we've got some government money in, in the education sector. Some money is being reallocated locally from central control out to local offices and, and, and local delivery. So we are currently giving a number of our customers in that sector advice to talk to the local employer partnerships and local chambers of commerce and all the all the major players that will be involved in that in that commissioning process we are telling them to get involved in those committees and in those steering groups now because in the next 12 months they are going to be setting the priority for the future for the local area and when they commission that if you've been involved in in, in actually the discussions around what the local area needs then you can influence it towards what you're actually going to be doing. So, yeah, getting involved is a really practical and important element because if you don't get involved, others will. This sounds to me very much like a game of 3D chess. (laughs) It requires 
strategy, it requires tactics, it requires good relationship building, planning, organization, it requires marshalling the right resources, ensuring that everybody understands their particular role in the process, that they're communicating what's required, they are raising questions and challenging thinking. It, I mean, it, it must be a fascinating world to operate in. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I love my job because I go and see different organisations in different contexts with different challenges every day to be involved in the coordination of that activity. And it is complex and it is always pressured because it is always time bound. There is an artistry to it. And, and I mean, I, I don't like bidding, but I love winning. I don't like bid writing, I like winning. So I don't, A, it's not my, it's not my role or my goal to write as many bids as I possibly can. Yeah. My goal is to write the fewest, the, the fewest bids and with the most wins. And that's really where, where I'm at. I, on a personal note, I take, I take losing very badly. I'm quite competitive. The, the kids won't play games with me because, <laughs> A, I won't let them win. And, B, when, I do, uh, when they do win, I then sulk. Okay. Winning, is, winning is a very personal thing. So people say, well, how can you write for my organisation? You know, it doesn't matter to you what the result is. And actually, it's, uh, you know, it, that's, that's not strictly true. The, the, re, the result for me matters. Long-term relationships matter. And actually, the clients we use, we work with, come back to us time and again. An average client that we have will have had six or seven bids. Um, this year, for example, we've got a client that, uh, that was, a, was a very much a very tiny, small, uh, struggling training provider that was delivering a qualification that the funding, the government funding, paid £2,600 per learner. But because they had to work as a subcontractor to a local college, the local college was given them £350 for that, for that programme. Wow. Which is, which is, you know, Terrible, it's tiny. Um, you know, this year we won we wanted his own contract, which which was a which was a starting point, which gave him twice the income that he, he had under the college. And then since then we've put in two growth successful growth bids for him. And actually he's gone from 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 fighting as one man and a trainer and somebody you know, part-time in the office. And he's now he's building an organisation that's spanning most of the northeast now. Uh, and we are we we've got him on the map. We, he, his first, our first opportunity on that one was to actually even get him into the into the game. And then we got him in the game directly. And now we are growing his business with him using a strategy for growth. That doesn't mean he hasn't got to go out and do sales in the way that you would approach selling. They're still engaging and selling activity that he needs to do. But that's just one aspect of the two strategies. And he has a bid strategy and he has a sales strategy, but he, he deploys them equally as he requires them and he gives them the same attention and resource. And I think, you know, as a bid writer, very often bidding is not, it, it, it's not sexy, it's not pretty. It's hard work and a lot of people shy away from the opportunities that it gives because it's hard to understand and hard to get into, but it does represent a lot of missed opportunity. That's been really insightful. The, the key questions that I would typically have my clients ask before they start are, how did we make the list for receiving this RFP and how many RFPs were sent? If we decide to participate, what happens next? Will the low bid be the one that wins? What results is the company hoping to achieve by implementing the contents of this RFP? 
why aren't they doing it in-house? And if we decide to submit, to whom can we submit a rough draft and have it critiqued to make sure we've, got it, we've covered all the important issues? I'd also want to ask, what are the chances that this is a legitimate RFP? What are our chances of winning? Do, you know, do we even qualify? If they're only going to be working with larger organizations and we're a small organization, why are we getting involved? Because it's costly, it's time-consuming, a huge opportunity cost. And compared to other opportunities that we're pursuing, how does this one stack up and should we participate? Are there any other questions that you would typically advise your clients to go through in advance of participating to make sure that they are getting an early qualified out what I would ask is always, do you really want to win? Is this central to your business? Is it a diversion away from your business? And do you really want to win this? Do you really want this business if you win it? A lot of people will tender because the tender is there and there's an opportunity there. It might not be 100% exactly in their core, so they'll want to put a submission in. But the problem that you have with that, and the reason why I urge caution there is because it can be. I, I had a client that was in danger of losing one of their main funding streams. This would be about 18 months ago. They have three core funding streams that they were working with, and they're an education provider with three core funding streams that they were bidding on and delivered, and it was all quite nicely going along. It was what they did, and they did it very well. Those, one of those funding streams was threatened because, as is the way things change, priorities move, and one of those funding streams was being removed. They panicked, and actually they said, look, we need to bid for everything. Hmm. And so they, they, they set about bidding for anything that was in the education sector, anywhere in the country, whether it was a local pot of money or a small scheme. And, and despite counsel that says, do you really want this work? Because that's the key question, do you really want it? They're like, yes, 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 we want the business, need the business, need to keep people busy, got to keep jobs, got to save jobs. So we bid for the work. As in my normal fashion, we win the work. And they very soon had 11 contracts, which were looking for different things that actually required different skill sets. Not 11 contracts I just went out and chose, but 11 contracts that I'd not been able to talk them into not going for. That They said, no, I want, we're determined to pursue this one. And within 12 months, six of those contracts were given back because they'd, they'd taken a decision. So you can't, as a writer, there is a limit to, I, we can only lead the horse to water. We, we can't make it drink, you know. It, it, so very much is it, do you want this? What is the ramification if you win this? What impact is it going to have on your resources, on your business, on your other lines of service that you offer? Yeah. Is it going to consume you to the point that you start ruining other relationships and damage your existing business and goodwill? So it's, you know, very, looking, so that is very, very key to the conversation because there's nothing worse than winning contracts for people and those contracts being given back because they've not, they've not fulfilled them because of the impact it's having on their other, in this case, their other two funding lines were starting to suffer and yeah. came under risk because of the panic for losing the third. Now, I'm not saying they shouldn't have gone to some of them. What I'm saying is if you like the need to immediately replace the finances actually overawed a little bit of good sense in that regard there is another part to that proverb which is you can't lead a horse to water and make them drink unless you put salt in the oats so a really good example of that is i do a lot of work in media and in hospitality i remember a few years back i was working with a media company working in the medical pr space they had someone who was full-time just getting bids and tenders and farming them out to all of their agencies. 
and all of them had to put submissions in. So they were competing with themselves more often than not. And they, their win rate was something like 2 to 4%. Another example, and th this is really tangible, and this is where you put salt in the oats. I, I had a situation with one of my clients in hospitality. And in hospitality, often the major brands have uh, brand guidelines in terms of how they respond to inquiries. So they need to respond within 10 minutes uh, to any inquiry, and they need to get a proposal out within three hours. One of these was a luxury hotel that was getting, uh, in 2016-17, got a thousand inquiries from one source. It was an online travel booker. Each one of those cost them a few hours in human time to respond. We worked out that it cost roughly £700,000 in hidden costs to respond to all of their requests for proposal. It turned out that in the course of that year, they won one piece of business at £100,000 revenue on a 40% gross margin, which took it down to about 12% profit. When you netted all that out, it just didn't make any sense to pursue that kind of business. So what they ended up doing was telling these people, look, we're putting all of your inquiries into spam. We are never going to respond unless they meet these qualification criteria. Don't bother sending them because we aren't going to respond. And their profits have shot up as a result because now those resources are being spent on good business and the right type of business. And it's that lottery mentality, you've got to be in it to win it, that I think is incredibly dangerous and pervasive. And it needs to be challenged, particularly by whoever it is who's ultimately responsible for managing that bid. And this brings me to some of the wrap-up questions, because I'm conscious we're coming to our time now. Who needs to be accountable in the bid bidding process on the vendor side? Right. I think it's a layered approach in terms of the accountability. I think the first thing, as you've rightly pointed out there, is you've got to define your bid strategy. So within the highest levels of your organization, organizations will very often have very good marketing strategies and they'll have very good sales strategies, but very few really articulate their bid strategy in the same way. And I think the first thing is, is that any organization that is going to or potentially participate in, in bidding of any in any form needs to actually put it on a par with marketing and sales and build a proper robust strategy for it. Because in doing so, what you do is you create a clear KPI, a clear objective of the nature of the business. Because with bidding, there are so many opportunities that come out. There's what, something like 4,000 public sector opportunities published in the last, in, in, in the last two months. These are just large-scale projects, not the small stuff. This is kind of the kind of looking at the big stuff and they are you know you can end up chase rabbits down rabbit holes if you're not careful we'll bid for this we'll bid for that and if you've got an internal bid writing process where you've just got bid writers who are looking for bids to put put in and they've got time to fill they start chasing bids that are there in front of them rather than the bids the organization wants so you need to almost go back and ask the question what type of bids do we want to identify in the first instance? Because that talks about how you set up your horizon scanning. So could you look for opportunities? So you get opportunity to get invited into the right opportunities. And then it's a case of how you then manage that. And this is at a level above, if you like, the bid writing. This is just getting, you know, almost setting the scene for what the business is going to do underneath that. 
when you get to the bid writer stage, you then need to actually start looking at the, the responsibility of the and accountability of a bid writer is very much around doing a detailed assessment of the bid and putting the bid to get and, and putting forward bids that actually meet the organisation's objectives, and not just chase rabbits down holes. And that is critical because it's not producing a bid necessarily. The first part doesn't produce the bid. I mean, for, for myself, for example, I will, very, I will evaluate bids depending on the size of the, of the bid. If it's a relatively uh, you know, small bid, then we will do the bid evaluation with the client and reach the go-no-go decision. And if it's taken us a couple of hours to, to reach that point, it might be that if it's a value client we do lots of work with, we won't charge them for that that particular that particular time. If it's just we, we do that as part of the part of the process. If it's a complex bid that needs a proper business model put together, a project model put together, then we you know it could be a couple of days' work just to even establish whether you want to go no go for that for for that program. Fantastic. And if that's the case, you can you can put that forward. You, you you can you can do that. But you've got to have clear understanding of what is right for the business that is bidding in the first instance because you need to stay true to the objectives and your business plan and your strategy and that, that go with it and make sure your bidding processes and your bid your bits that you chase are aligned with your overarching strategy and, and really that's that's key responsibility at the highest level to set that strategy and the bid writers then to work within that strategy as they understand it. Stuart this has been really insightful. Thank you so much. I'm really impressed. I've got a fantastically uh, improved understanding of the challenges with bid writing and actually some respect for it now, um, because historically it's not been an area that I've been wildly keen on, but just simply because it seems to be a huge time and money pit if it's mishandled. Tell me, how can people get hold of you? You're quite correct. Mishandling is the key. You've got to handle a bid with respect. It is a costly exercise. Eyes open when you go in. If you want to get hold of me, you can contact me on stuart at strapplan.co.uk or you can call me on 07739 526 500 and you'll find me on LinkedIn and in various other various other locations. Sorry, and Straplan is spelt? S-T-R-A-P-L-A-N. Excellent. Okay. Um, Stuart, thank you so much. I really appreciate you putting so much effort into this and being so open. If anybody is looking for a winning bid writer, then please get in touch with Stuart Pyle at the details he's just given you. If you can't remember those or you're stuck and you suddenly think, oh, I need to get in touch, where, where can I get hold of somebody? Then get in contact with me and I'll put you in touch with Stuart and his team. And once again, thank you all for listening. This is Marcus Kauke on the Inquisitor podcast. Look forward to speaking to you soon. Bye.